Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live, a bite of the Big Apple. We're going to start out with uh, Newsday's Eric Boland, who covers uh, the New York Yankees, and like every other team in Major League Baseball, now that there is an officially a lockout, um, things get ugly when they have these lockouts. People say things. Um, I don't know if how much of this is... Uh, the only thing I can come away with this, Eric, is... We're going to be in this thing probably until about March, I guess. Do you think, deep down inside, knowing these two sides a little bit, that there's going to be any games missed? You know, Howard, I mean, that obviously is, is the biggest question, and, and that's the number one question uh, among fans, uh, or their biggest concern, and, and it should be. And, uh, I just think that I think there's a distinct possibility that, that there there will be some, some games missed. I, I certainly hope that's not the case. I hope that I... Uh, report to spring training to, to cover the Yankees uh, around the same time that, that I typically do, which is usually around the, the first or second week of February. Uh, but I just think that with these two sides, past is always prelude. And uh, anytime you have a work stoppage, it usually gets pretty ugly uh, in terms of the public sniping and mudslinging. We've already seen uh, a little bit of uh, uh, back and forth uh, between Manfred and Tony Clark, and the lockout is less than 12 hours old. Uh, and I only expect that to increase. And uh, I think all that you need to know about this is what happened last year in the middle of a, a pandemic when there was no vaccine uh, and you know, everyone was was pretty much uh, cloistered in their respective, uh, you know, houses, apartments, et cetera, and, and things uh, were not good in this country. We're not good in the world. Uh, and what did you have between Major League Baseball and the Players Association, but just a, a very ugly public back and forth trying to figure out how to play a 60-game season? Um, and so if, if the two sides couldn't uh, find common ground for the common good in those circumstances, uh, we're obviously still very much in the pandemic, but the, the, the situation is different than it was in summer of, of 2020, certainly in that regard. Uh, but if, if they couldn't, when things were at their absolute worst then, uh, I, I don't see any reason to be uh, optimistic that they're going to be able to uh, you know, come to a quick resolution uh, th this time around. It doesn't mean that I don't think there's going to be a resolution at some point, but I think that uh, I don't think the real negotiation, Howard's really going to probably take place until uh, you get into that early mid even to late february uh when missing regular season games uh becomes a real threat so when you look at the issues it's always about money we know that uh players feel like uh the major league baseball is making a lot of money and they're not feeling the same way and then there's the issue about expanding it to 12 teams in the playoffs what other issues do you think are uh, are uh, as important as the two I've mentioned. I mean, those really those are the ones. I mean, you know, it's a eleven billion dollar business. 
uh, and, and it's how to split that up. And, and each side wants the more share of the pie. Uh, and then obviously you have the you know the, the competitive balance tax and luxury tax threshold floors and ceilings etc and, and things that the fans frankly really don't care that much about and they should and, and it's the old line that goes back to the 1994-95 uh, strike slash lockout um, where you you know the 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 phrase billionaires versus millionaires entered the, the lexicon and really has not. Uh, left uh, and and I think that fans just they get tired of it. That you you also hear the phrase a pox upon both houses. Mm. Uh, I know you haven't asked me necessarily, but I usually come down on the side of the players on this because uh, for me the bottom line has been and it's been this way for me as long as I've been doing this job is that nobody in the history of professional sports has ever paid money to watch an owner do anything. And so, in the end, uh, that's the product that, that, that uh, makes money for the sport, which is the players. Uh, and if the $43 million a year doesn't go to Max Scherzer, uh, who should it go to? Um, I certainly don't think it should necessarily go into the, uh, into the owner's pocket. So, uh, you know, look, it, it's always about money, Howard. Uh, you know, the... the I think it's comical that in, in that letter that uh, that Rob Manfred sent out to, to the fans that he talked about how uh, the players' proposals w- would make teams uh, less competitive. Uh, Major League Baseball owners have done that all on their own in recent years, making as few teams competitive as possible because uh, tanking is a real issue. And until Major League Baseball actually acknowledges that it is, uh, you know, that it's going to continue to be a, a major issue. And that is one of the biggest uh, uh things on the, on the from the players perspective is that they don't feel uh that enough teams are actually trying to win a year-to-year basis and there's a lot of evidence to back that up i think we lost eric you with me eric i'm still here yeah i thought we just dropped out for a second um when you deal look you cover the yankees and a couple of days ago it was announced that gary sanchez was extended for this year uh, a friend of mine's a huge Yankee fan. I, I was talking to him, and he went nuts. <laughs> He's like, why are they doing this? And I got to be honest, I don't know why. Uh, Sanchez has had his issues. Look, a couple of years ago, he was hitting fine. Well, he's not hitting uh, the way he did then. He's certainly not catching, which is kind of important when you're a catcher. So why did the Yankees do this? It really is reflective of a few different things, but first and foremost, and I, I led my story in Newsday about this a couple of days ago. I was talking to a, a National League manager by phone about a couple of different topics, and I asked him about the state of catching in Major League Baseball, and he described it as horse bleep. Uh, <laughs> I, I bleep myself there. Uh, the, and it is, and, and and this has been an issue, and, and this is my I'm going into my 14th year uh, covering the Yankees, and uh, I remember talking to a long time, and uh, may he rest in peace, a terrific guy, Jim Fergosi. I know you know that name. Maybe sure. you came across him at some point, long time uh, manager in the big leagues, and then was, was a, 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 a high ranking advanced scout for the Phillies up until his uh, death a number of years ago. But I remember talking to Jim Fergosi about 10, 11 years ago, and him talking about the absolute dearth, lack of quality catching in the big leagues. And that's only gotten worse in, in the last decade for a variety of reasons. That, that That's maybe another, another show topic altogether. Uh, but you do have with Gary Sanchez an established big league catcher. Now, I, I'm not making him the all-star. He is a two-time all-star, hasn't been in three years. But uh, you do have an established guy already. 
and it's not so easy to find those guys. And, and any Yankee fan that, that wants to see Kyle Higashioka behind the plate for 120, 130 games, if you think you, that you're getting inconsistent hitting out of the position now, wait until you put him in there for 120, 130 games. And that's no disrespect meant uh, to Higashioka, who uh, I, I like a lot. Uh, he, he's a terrific backup catcher. Uh, he's a terrific receiver. Pitchers love him. He, he's got uh, leadership qualities, very well liked by the, uh, the pitching staff, uh, very well liked overall in the clubhouse. Great organizational guy, and I think he's going to be a coach slash manager when he's done because he's got all the attributes uh, that you would want for, uh, for those positions. Um, but when he got prolonged playing time last year, uh, I think he ended up being a 160-170 hit or something in that range. So, um, you know, finding a, a quality frontline catcher uh, is not an easy thing to do. Finding just an established big league catcher is not an easy thing to do. So, uh, while a lot there was a lot of speculation going into the, the non-tender deadline uh, that maybe the Yankees would cut bait with Gary Sanchez, uh, I never believed they actually would do that. Uh, I thought that they would explore the market, whether it be trade or free agent. Uh, but ultimately, I figured that they would tender uh, Sanchez a, a contract for the reasons that I just mentioned uh, and, and uh, you know, phrased by the, uh, the National League manager that I was talking to uh, the other day. There's just not a lot of good catching in the big leagues. Yeah, well, I can understand that. Uh, they, uh, they pick up uh, Gio Urshela for one year, $6.5 million. Uh, Domingo Herman for a year. Um, shortstop was on the need list. Uh, Corey Seager from the Dodgers. Signs a ridiculous contract for 10 years and about $160 million. And I could see the Yankees not wanting to pay that. Uh, that's just a lot of money and a lot of a commitment for a shortstop that is probably an upgrade from what they have, but how much of an upgrade compared to what they have? And, and, and you go there. I, I read something where there are five or six teams interested in Freddie Freeman, who's a free agent for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, he's also the, fra- the face of the franchise. Now, they, the Braves can't do anything about it until this lockout is finished. So, and nobody can sign him to a, to a contract either. Uh, look, Freddie Freeman, to, to me, was, is a tremendous uh, part of the Braves' success and why they won the World Series for the short term. For the long term, uh, I'm not so sure, but I still think they're going to get him uh, and they'll pay whatever they got to pay to get him. So where do the Yankees go from a shortstop perspective, uh, Velasquez, uh, he's gone now. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, yeah, he's with the Angels. And what about, um, there was one other player I was going to ask you about. Oh, Tyler Wade. Yeah, and Wade is with the Angels, too. I mean, shortstop, look, it's a position that Brian Cashman has said that there's a sense of, you know, quote, urgency. Uh, he said that during the general manager's meetings a couple of weeks ago in uh, Carlsbad, California. Uh, and that's, you know, they're going to fill that one way or another, whether it be uh, via the trade route or the free agent route. Um, I, I know there's a lot of people that wanted Corey Seager because of his lefty bat uh, as an option, but uh, the Yankees were not, as you mentioned, going to go like the, the 10 years and $325 million, uh, that Seager got from uh, the Rangers. I think he would have been a good fit for the Yankees. Look, uh, and it's not my money. Uh, I've never understood why, why fans or reporters, for that matter, care, <laughs> yeah. and I mean care in, in air quotes from a, 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 a rooting interest standpoint, how much money any player makes, to be honest with you, because it, it, it really doesn't impact us whatsoever. Um, I would I would open my checkbook if I was Hal Stamrunner and give Carlos Correa whatever the heck he wants. 
that that would be what I would do to fix that position. You're, you're putting a, a, a gold glove caliber shortstop uh, at Yankee Stadium for seven, eight, nine, ten years, whatever it is. He's 27 years old. Uh, you know, he can hit the ball to all fields. Um, to me, and forget all the Astros, you know, sign stealing scandal. That's all. It's all nonsense. And fans, I've seen Yankee fans saying, oh, "I don't want him on my team." Yeah, right. Yeah, you do. Uh, and and you would be the first to welcome the Bronx if, if the Yankees laid that kind of money out. Now, I don't believe that they're going to do that. Uh, that's how I would fix it. I think the Yankees are going to do some kind of a stopgap measure, uh, signing someone like uh, Andrew Simmons, a uh, terrific fielder, not much of a hitter, and, and on the downside of his career, but you could put him in that position for a year or two, maybe a Freddie Galvis uh, type again uh, for a year or two, and they have two uh, shortstop prospects that they really, really like right. in uh, Anthony Volpe and, uh, and uh, Peraza, uh, as well as Peraza, that they really like too, uh, but you know, uh, counting on prospects can be a, a dangerous game, especially for a team like the Yankees. Which is why, like I said, I would just lay out the money for for Carlos Correa. Uh, and you can also explore the the trade market as well, and you can always uh, find someone in, in that regard. So when this lockout ends, whenever it does, I, I expect that to be one of the first moves that the uh, that the Yankees make. But, um, you know, the only, and I wrote this in Newsday today, I know Yankee fans are very upset. They're irate that the Yankees really haven't done anything significant um, since, uh, you know, begin the run up to the, to the deadline, uh, the last night deadline. But besides Seager, they really were not engaged all that much with, with any of the guys that had signed thus far. They were uh, not considered primary targets of the Yankees. Yeah, let me ask you about Anthony Rizzo. Uh, he, he obviously is an outstanding fielder, and he hits enough. Um, so wh where is he in their thinking? Yeah, I mean, and first base is, is yet another uh, an area of need for the Yankees. They did tender a contract to Luke Voigt, uh, but, you know, the Yankees tried to trade Voigt after they acquired Rizzo at the trade deadline, before the trade deadline last year, uh, and he's also been injury-prone, uh, and he's not a very good fielder. He's put in a lot of hard work to try to make himself a, a better fielder, uh, and it really hasn't uh, hasn't panned out. Uh, th that could be an option for the Yankees, but they want to protect themselves there, uh, and I think uh, Rizzo would probably be a good fit. He enjoyed his time in New York, he's told the uh, confidants that. Um, and so I think that that may end up being uh, what the Yankees uh, what the Yankees do uh, to fill that position. They also have needs in center field. Brian Cashman wants to get some insurance because Aaron Hicks, obviously, uh, when healthy, uh, is pretty good out there, but he has not been able to stay healthy uh, going back to his time in Minnesota. Um, and they also have... Uh, They've got needs in the rotation and in the bullpen as well. So, uh, you know, they have, they have a lot of work to do. And, and right now, like every other team, uh, they're kind of frozen uh, in limbo, uh, waiting to see what is, ends up happening uh, to fill those holes. Uh, before I let you go, 2021 edition of George Steinbrenner is now Steve Cohn of the Mets. Uh, I mean, Max Scherzer, I mean, look, he's a great pitcher. We know that. They gave him three years. He's 37 years old. So there's a measure of risk. There's tremendous uh, risk there, but I, but I will say this, and I tweeted this the other day. Steve Cohen is acting the way every fan of every team they root for wishes their owner acted like. And I grew up in Cleveland where uh, we had a, a bunch of 
of owners that, that fans considered to be cheap and not willing to lay out money. And I remember one of my, not heroes, because I really was not into hero worship as a kid, but but I always wished George Steinbrenner owned the Cleveland Indians, which he did make a bid to, to try to buy in 1972 before he ended up with the Yankees in 1973. Uh, and, and he ended up going to a, a, a spendthrift, uh, kind of a cheap owner named Vernon Stouffer of Stouffer Foods. Um, but I, I always wished that the owners of teams that I rooted for uh, spent a lot of money. And um, so I, I think, you know, hat tip to Steve Cohen. I know Mets fans are, are enthralled and excited uh, and thrilled to have him uh, owning the team. Yes, absolutely, uh, you know, risk. You know, and Starlin Marte is 33 years old. Scherzer, as you mentioned, is 37. Uh, all four of the guys that they signed are age 30 plus. We know that the risk that comes with that. Uh, but when you have the deep pockets that Steve Cohen has, uh, you know, you, you can spend your way out of uh, out of mistakes. And so, uh, if if one or some of those don't work out, uh, you know, he'll just uh, he'll he'll dig back into his pocketbook and uh, and figure a way out of it. I believe the next target when things heat up again might be Chris Bryant. I mean, he's very versatile. Yeah, he's, he's definitely a guy, and the Yankees have, have looked into acquiring him in the past, and so uh, yes, he would definitely be somebody that they would look at too, but you know, the, the one caveat to all of this, and, and Brian Cashman is kind of waiting for this too, uh, he has not been given a concrete budget yet from Hal Steinbrenner uh, in terms of what he has to work with for next year, uh, and the uh, suspicion of all along leading up to the lockout was that Steinbrenner was going to wait to see what was entailed in the new collective bargaining agreement whenever it's reached before really giving Cashman uh, an idea and, a, and a, a budget of X number of dollars because they want to see what, uh, you know, the luxury tax threshold, we're assuming that's going to be a part of the new collective bargaining agreement, uh, what that's going to be uh, before seeing how much above or below uh, he's willing to take the franchise in that direction when hey. it comes to, uh, to the finances. Eric, let me ask, before I could let you go, does this lock out preclude the election to the Hall of Fame? Uh, no. Okay, well, I'm not, just wondering. covered under the, uh, the CBA. Yeah, only because uh, as a child, a young little kid, I loved the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Gil Hodges is still not in the Hall of Fame, which is ridiculous. Uh, I, I just hope that the Veterans Committee or whatever this committee is uh, gets him in because it's long overdue, and his wife is still alive, and I hope they put him in before she passes away. Now I saw Ben Scully penned a, a story uh, for uh, uh, a website recently making that exact uh, argument. I would not, uh, I would not debate him when it comes to uh, to Gil Hodges. That's uh, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, we uh, as baseball writers have nothing to do with the veterans committee, so I don't have a vote. I just have a vote for the uh, for the ballot that uh, just arrived at my mailbox actually last week. Uh, so does Alex Rodriguez on your ballot? Uh, yes, he will be. I have not sent my ballot in yet. Uh, we can discuss that a, uh, another time. All right. but, uh, yes, I, I do vote for uh, the guys who I believe numbers-wise belong in the Hall of Fame, irregardless of their association with PEDs, because, as I, I've said many times before, if Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association didn't care about it uh, when it was going on, I don't consider myself uh, a qualified moral arbiter to do the same. So I, I evaluate when I fill out my ballot. And this is just the way I fill out my ballot. Uh, if somebody 
has numbers uh, commensurate with what I believe is Hall of Fame worthy if they were that much above uh, the people that they were playing against in the era that they were playing, uh, then they get my Hall of Fame vote and Alex Rodriguez based on the numbers, but solely on the numbers, uh, fits in that category. So yes, I, I will be voting for him. Well, we'll talk about that at a later date. Uh, thanks for your time, Eric. Appreciate it. You stay safe. Thank you, Howard. You do the same. Pleasure as always, and happy holidays. Thanks. Same to you. Eric Boland of New York Newsday. We're going to get into that conversation about the Hall of Fame. I got a real, real problem. I think baseball does a lot of things right. I think baseball does a lot of things wrong. I think when Bud Selig was the commissioner of Major League Baseball, I think he did a number of things wrong because all he cared about was the bottom line, making money for the owners. That's his job. He's hired by the owners. He's working for the owners. He's trying to make money for the owners. I get it. But at the risk of tarnishing the sport, to have the All-Star game determine who gets home field advantage in the World Series, preposterous. Two different sets of rules. DH in one league, no DH in the other. I, I just can't see it. Just can't see it. And as for the athletes that were involved in the PEDs, Alex Rodriguez we mentioned, Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, and the list goes on. They cheated the game. And it galls me to no end. When I put on ESPN on Sunday night and I watch a baseball game, and there's Alex Rodriguez on television, a known cheater of the game. And he was suspended for 60 games. Why don't they just put Pete Rose on? I got more of a reason for Pete Rose to be... To be, to, to be kicked out of jail, finally, than I do for Alex Rodriguez and Bonds and McGuire and all the rest of them. Pete Rose has paid more of a penalty than somebody who committed murder. He's been in jail for 30 years. Now, what he did was a violation of the baseball rules. It says so over the clubhouse door in every major league clubhouse. Gambling's prohibited. I get it. But it wasn't like he was betting on the opponent. And I'm not, look, I'm not trying to justify what Rose did. But he bet on himself. He bet on his team. So let me put that aside for a second. Because, look, Pete Rose doesn't help himself. More often than not. I, I'm just saying that I, I think it's really ridiculous when a guy who was so important to the game of baseball and is the all-time hits leader, uh, how long are we going to continue to play this game? That, that's what I'm at. I'm just wondering how long are we going to continue to play this game where we're punishing Pete Rose? I, I just, I, I don't quite understand it. Let me put that aside. If they come to the Hall of Fame ballot and for some reason any of these PED violators get elected into the Hall of Fame, then I'm going to go crazy and I'm going to scream a little bit. Today I read that the NBA has admitted they made a couple of mistakes in um, Tuesday's Knicks-Nets basketball game at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Officials make mistakes every single night in every single game. It's not new. The way I understand it from people that I talk to around the league is that the officials have let the game play. They've let the players 
play. They haven't been so quick to call fouls unless they're obvious. I've seen a lot of games where I went, are you kidding me? But Tom Thibodeau and Julius Randle in particular do not stop bitching at the officials night in and night out. They just do it every single night. Tuesday wasn't an aberration. It's consistent with what the coach of the Knicks and his best player do every single game. They never stop complaining. Maybe they ought to spend more time playing basketball. Thibodeau has a right to do whatever he wants with his team. So he benches Kemba Walker. I don't have any problem with that. That's his choice. He puts Alex Burks into the starting lineup. That's fine. He's a good player. He's a good shooter. He gives him a bigger presence at the point guard position at 6'6". Also a much better defender than Kemba Walker. So Thibodeau does whatever he can do. Whatever he wants to do with his team, I don't care. But my God, stop complaining about the officiating. After a while, the officials are tired of hearing it. And the longer he persists in this move of complaining every single night, after a while, the officials are going to say, all right, I had enough, and tee him up. Whether or not Julius Randle was fouled by James Harden the other night on a drive to the basket where he held his arm and the game was tied at that point, and Randle should have gone to the foul line and made two free throws. But we can't argue about the last foul that sent Johnson to the foul line for two that ultimately gave the Nets the victory. And they had a three-point lead until Evan Fournier buried a three to tie the game. But you can't question that foul on Mitchell Robinson. There was no question. He fouled him. There wasn't an argument over that. But with a minute and 47 seconds to play is what Thibodeau and Randall are complaining about. And Randall says, well, I'm big and strong, and the little guy has no chance with me. Come on. That's the same argument that I had with Shaquille O'Neal. Big, strong, monster player. And any time he was hit on the arm, they kind of looked the other way. Same with LeBron James. LeBron James, big, physically strong player. He doesn't get the calls that he deserves night in and night out. But I don't hear him complaining about it. If you're hanging your hat every single night on whether or not there are bad calls, and the NBA admitted there were two calls that should have gone the other way. Fine. The NBA doesn't owe the Knicks anything. They don't owe the Pistons anything. They don't owe the Lakers anything. They don't owe the Timberwolves anything. They don't owe the teams anything. They stood up like men and the best, most effective commissioner in pro sports, Adam Silver. He runs a great league. There are going to be mistakes. There's going to be bad calls. When I was calling games, and I would see fouls. I don't make a big deal about it. I said, that, that probably could have been a foul. That's it. I hear some announcers that go on like they have been, their first child has been adopted, has been taken from them. And, and, and the, the complaining by the Knicks doesn't stop on the sidelines. It goes into the booth. 
their announcers are always talking about the officiating. It's enough. Focus on the game. I would much rather watch Golden State play Phoenix like the other night. The two best teams right now record-wise in the NBA had a hell of a game. And it was not a great night for Steph Curry with only 12 points on, on a bad shooting night. He was 4 for 21. That happens very rarely to Steph Curry. But I would rather watch that kind of a game. Hey, I'll go back to you know when Pat Riley was coaching the Knicks. The league was much more physical then. You could have called a foul on about every possession. It's not anywhere near as physical as it was back in the 90s. No, not even close. The bad boy Pistons were playing in this league this year. They would never get to the foul line because the officials would look away. Officials do not or should not decide the outcome of games. But all of this stuff about making headlines about officiating. Watch tonight as an example. Chicago Bulls, a much improved team, are coming in to play the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. Bulls have been struggling of late. It will be interesting to see how they play at Madison Square Garden. It should be a good game. But I guarantee it. Once, twice, three, four times during the game, you're going to see Thibodeau or Julius Randle complain about the officiating. That's what they do. Night in and night out. Stop. You're wearing me out. I put on a game to watch the players. I do not put on a game to see how many calls the officials are going to be made. Now, the Knicks have a case. The other night, uh, Brooklyn took twice as many free throws. Okay, maybe they earned it. And if the league's admitting to two bad calls against the Knicks, what about all those other calls that the, the Nets went to the foul line? James Harden goes to the basket. He's going to get calls. Kevin Durant is a very difficult guard. He's going to get calls. Julius Randle gets his share of calls. Okay, maybe not as much as Nick fans would like. But for the love of Pete, come on already with this constant complaining. Get off it. It's enough. And you're wondering why I'm going on with this? Look, I understand. I understand. I just don't want to see every single game when the cameras cut to the sidelines of the New York Knicks and all you see is Tom Thibodeau with his eyes bulging out of his head and the look on his face like, oh, my God. Like, he's, like they just reached in his pocket and stole his money. It's part of the deal. It's just part of the deal. That's all I'm going to say about that. Hello? Let's talk to uh, Daryl Slater of the, the Newark Star-Ledger. How are you, Daryl? It's Howard David. I'm doing great. Uh, you, you're, um, you cover the Giants, cover the, the Jets, and I guess Sunday was, what, the second time this year that both teams have won on the same day, which is kind of unusual, right? Given the history recently, yeah. <laughs> a rare day that both fan bases could be happy. So the question that I have, and I saw both games, 
uh, and the Giants, you know, played. They, they couldn't close it out. Uh, they wound up winning the game, but they had an opportunity several times to close out the game, and it didn't happen. Uh, and now we have questions whether or not Daniel Jones is going to play. Uh, what are you hearing? Uh, he says it looks like he wants to play. Yeah, he does. I mean, he, had a, he has a strained neck coming out of that game. It looks like he got hurt on his second play where he ran the ball and once again did not do a good enough job of giving himself up going fully feet first. So that that's an issue for him. Um, and he has a strained neck. He was limited in practice on well, Wednesday, yesterday. We'll see what he does today or on Thursday. Probably going to be limited again. But all, all signs point to, to uh, Mike Glennon getting the start in Miami on Sunday against what's been a pretty darn good Dolphins defense. So that it's going to be a challenge for the Giants. And it looks like, you know, this is not a season-ending thing for Daniel Jones, but he's going to miss at least one game, uh, maybe the, the Chargers game as well, but uh, uh, at least this one game. Uh, Daryl, uh, beginning of the season, I talked to uh, Carl Banks, and I asked him if this was a make-or-break year for Daniel Jones, and he emphatically said no. Uh, if I ask him that question today, would he give me the same answer? Oh, I'm sure he, he probably would. Uh, but, um, you know, in reality, you know, th- this was all along going to be a critically important year for Daniel Jones, no doubt. I mean, the Giants have to decide by next offseason whether they're going to pick up his fifth-year option for 2023, and that, that option is $21 million. So um, now the cap will be a lot higher in 2023 than it is this year than it will be next year. So uh, you have to take that into account, but that's a fully guaranteed $21 million that the Giants are going to be committing to him by the time they pick up that option next offseason if they do it. Now, just from the objective perspective, I mean, it's pretty obvious we haven't seen enough to know whether this guy's going to be a franchise quarterback. And this injury does zero to help that determination because, you know, obviously it puts puts him on the sideline at a time when you need to evaluate them. So um, not ideal, but it looks like he'll be able to get some games in here at the end of the season as the Giants try to figure out if he's their guy. Um, I, would, I would guess, you know, it's just so much easier to stick with a guy unless he's really bad. Um, versus start over. Now, obviously, the Jets had the number two pick, and Zach Wilson was there. The Giants probably would have to perhaps move up and package picks to move up to get a quarterback, at least given where they are right now. So uh, I would guess right now that he'll probably be back and they'll pick up the option and then just you know hope he can develop more next year. But right now, the jury's still out on it. I hear a lot. We're talking with uh, Daryl Slater of the Newark Star-Ledger as we've taken a bite of the Big Apple with Daryl. Uh, a lot of people think that Dave Gettleman is not only on the hot seat, but he's going to be gone after the season's over. How much of that will affect whether or not Daniel Jones stays or not, because the next GM may not want to keep him? That's true. You know, and now, of course, another GM may not want to inherit a coach either. But but here's the thing that I think you, you almost have to work backwards when you have an incumbent coach. Presuming, I presume Joe Judge is not going anywhere. Um but yes, I would guess Dave Gettleman will be fired. Um, and now you have to work backwards because what happened in 2014 with the Jets, or rather 2013, is they got rid of Mike Tannenbaum, brought in John Idzik, who was not a fit with Rex Ryan. It was an arranged marriage that didn't work out. Those situations just don't work out. You, if you're committed to a coach like the Giants are to Joe Judge, now for better or for worse, they're, they're committed to him. Um, and you have to have a bring in a GM who shares his vision, whether that's involves like promoting someone from within the organization who's currently here or bringing someone in who has a Patriots background or, or just someone who shares the same vision as judge. So Joe judge already has pretty significant personnel say, 
which is why he can't really skate on blame for things like the fact they didn't address offensive guard this offseason. But if Joe Judge really likes Daniel Jones, then I would guess that Daniel Jones is going to be back because they're going to probably, you know, if they're smart, hire a GM, again, for better or worse, who shares the vision with Joe Judge. Like, it's it's a bad decision to bring in a GM who just doesn't get along with your coach. You, you need to have guys who, who are on the same page. Uh, now, that may be the wrong page and that may be the wrong vision, but uh, you need to at least have, like, uh, clarity and, and uh, you know, that sort of thing within your organization. So uh, the, the, Joe Judge will have significant say in who the next GM is, and Joe Judge will retain significant personnel say. So a lot of it comes down to, you know, what Joe Judge thinks of Daniel Jones just as much as what the a new GM or any of the GM candidates would think of Daniel Jones. Uh, Daryl, let me talk about, you know, the obviously the news of last week was the firing of Jason Garrett, uh, replaced by Freddie Kitchens, whether that's temporary or long term, we don't know. But not much was different. Uh, the offense was still uh, a bit conservative. Uh, not much was done. They were only three of 12 on third down plays, only 70 yards rushing. 32 of those yards came on one Saquon Barkley run, which brings me to the discussion of Saquon Barkley. Uh, a lot of people criticized the Giants for picking him when they did. I was not one of those. I thought it was a good pick, and I still think it's a good pick. But I think about what Bill Parcells told me at the beginning of the season. He would like to see Saquon Barkley, in addition to his proficiency running outside, he would like to see him run between the tackles. The question is, do the Giants have the offensive line where he's able to do that? No, definitely not. <laughs> That's the problem. I mean, uh, so so it's 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 a good sentiment to say. Like, obviously, you want to be able to run the, between the tackles really well, but their guards are bad. Um, and there's you know they have Billy Price's center, and he's not a really good player. Um, and so the, the, the interior of their offensive line is a mess. Now, if their center Nick Gates hadn't gotten hurt in Washington and broken his leg, you know maybe things would be different. If the Giants had done a better job of addressing guards this offseason after cut, cutting Kevin Zeitler to create cap space. Maybe things would be different, but that's not the situation they're in. And so here's Freddie Kitchens, um, you know, inheriting an offense that really just doesn't have some of the very basic things that it takes to be a successful offense. And in short, their line is terrible. I mean, like Nate Solder is a disaster at right tackle. Hmm. And so, um, you know, they have a, one guy on that line in Andrew Thomas, the left tackle, who's shown some potential this year and looks like he could be a long-term piece. The other guys starting right now, are are not not even not not long term solutions. Like those guys should all be gone after this year. Like they're gonna let Will Hernandez, I would presume, walk free agency. You know, maybe they get Nick Gates back at center. They have to figure out right tackle. So yeah, I mean they have a lot of issues. I mean, so so that's that's part of the thing. I mean, like Saquon Barkley is yeah, I mean like who knows what he would be on a team that with a really good line and if he could stay healthy. But like those are two big ifs right now and one of them you know they're both really outside of his control but like one of them is a huge thing like hampering him in this entire offense and, and that's the fact that the line line stinks and then so uh dave gettleman didn't do a good enough job uh, addressing that and so there's only so much you can do when you have a line that looks like uh, produces like what the giants has D- daryl uh, the other day um the last game against um uh when they when they won uh on sunday kenny galladay was targeted seven times which doesn't sound like a lot, except when you consider up to then he hadn't been ta- targeted that many times. Yeah, I mean, Jason Garrett didn't do a good enough job of getting the ball to Kenny Galladay or trying to get the ball to him, and that's one reason why he's gone. I mean, Joe Judge made it plain and simple after that game in Tampa. 
you know, when, when he was asked about Kenny Galladay only getting two targets in that game, like he said, yeah, I mean, he should be frustrated. We, he basically flat out, he fired Jason Garrett publicly right after that game by saying, basically airing all the grievances he had about, about Garrett. The fact that, um, you know, most notably he wasn't doing a good enough job getting the ball to their best players. And Joe judge like came out and said it in the days after the game, like he believes, um, you know that you win football based on what, what's the saying? Like the it's 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 probably a Parcel saying. It's about Jimmys and Joes, not the X's and O's, right? So that that's been going around for years, and that that's the way Joe Judge looks at it. It's like you build your offense and your approach around the the players that you have and the strengths of those players, and not necessarily trying to take an offense and fit it to players. Which I think uh, it doesn't take much reading between the lines to, to see that that was one of his gripes to Jason Garrett that he didn't do a good enough job of like utilizing the players he was trying to fit guys into the scheme and be very scheme oriented and play oriented as opposed to player oriented so i think you're going to see the giants try to get the ball more to kenny galladay um get the get Kadarius tony when he's healthy more involved um which is something jason garrett wasn't creative enough to do so uh yeah i mean i mean geez they're paying galladay enough money they gotta get this kind of ball um and he you know is he is he you know, the second coming of Calvin Johnson, you know, probably not, but um, they're paying him a lot of money and he's one of their best skill position guys. You'd think that you'd want to get that guy the ball. I had kind of mixed feelings about the Garrett firing. I thought it was the right call, but I go back to Jason when he was a quarterback at Princeton. That's how I started my career, calling Princeton games, basketball and football. So we go back a long ways. But look, uh, I'm not stupid. I, I see what's been going on or not going on, and the Giants had to do what the Giants had to do. Uh, uh, by the way, let me let me just uh, add to the fact you quoted Parcells with Jimmys and Joes and all of that. That's way back. That's bef- that's after shop the groceries line. That's after he's not going to Canton yet. <laughs> Was that-, that Parcells who said that? I'm just guessing. What? The Jimmys and Joes. I don't recall that. I do. I was around Bill when I called the Jets games and he was coaching yeah. the Jets and. Uh, he, I mean, the, the, I talked about a player, and he says, "Oh yeah, we're getting ready to put him in Canton." Uh, you know, he was he was noted for that. He was noted for you know, you are what your record says you are. He's noted for you know, you want me to cook the meal, but you don't want to let me shop for yep. the groceries and and all of that stuff. And so when he gave me that that one line of shopping for the groceries, I'm in his office a couple of days later, getting ready to tape his TV show, and I said, "Shop for the groceries, really?" So he said, what, are you correcting me now? I said, no, I'm just trying to figure out where the hell you were going with that. But as, <laughs> I'll tell you a very quick Parcel story. I'm calling uh, uh, the Jets games, and they were terrific in 1998. They went to the AFC Championship game and were probably good enough to win it all. But they turned the ball over too much in the AFC Championship game, and that was that. Um, I questioned... He he was he's old school. We all know that. So on on first and goal at the two yard line, he ran the ball. On second and goal from the two yard line, he ran the ball. Third and goal, ditto. Fourth and goal, ditto, and didn't score. So I see him in his office after the game, and he said, "We couldn't. They won the game. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said anything." He said, uh, "I know you like to run the ball a lot, but wouldn't have you thought about after missing the first two First and goal, second and goal, maybe throw the ball. He goes, what are you doing, correcting my, my play calling? I said, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I don't know half of what you know. I'm just wondering if one thing didn't work, why not? the object of the game is to score by whatever means necessary. And that's all I said. The next 
week. They're playing a game at then it was Giant Stadium. And uh, on first and goal from the two-yard line, they ran play action and Testaverde threw a touchdown. So unbeknownst to me, because I would close the broadcast with Dave Jennings from the booth, Dave would go back downstairs and start the press conference from downstairs. So I get downstairs and the press uh, guys in the press are surrounding me. I said, what, what's going on? Parcells just credited you with calling the right play. I said, what? What are you talking about? Apparently what happened was he said that I took advice from our radio broadcaster about because the press questioned him as to why he decided to throw on first down and that's not been his resume. And so he said, well, my radio broadcaster gave me a good idea and I used it. I said, what? So I go into his office and I said, thanks, but are you kidding me? He goes, no. He said, you deserve credit. I took your advice. And I said, well, okay, so what do you want to do next week or do you want me to tell you? <laughs> He's the best, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, he was. Look, I think as much credit as Belichick is getting for being the greatest coach of all time. He, co- I mean, Parcells was the head coach with the Giants when Belichick was the defensive coordinator. I think Belichick learned a little something from Parcells. No doubt, no doubt about it. Uh, but let me talk to the, about the Jets because you also covered the Jets. Um, we know. The Jets, I think the, the Giants, I don't know if they're in a better position than the Jets are right now because the Jets are going to go uh, with this young quarterback no matter what uh, until they find out that he's not the answer. But Zach Wilson has shown that he can be the answer. The question is, can they keep him upright? And their offensive line has also got some issues. Yeah, I mean, that, that you look at the, their problems they've had on their offensive line going back to their last GM and even their current GM Joe Douglas who has got an offensive line background and people thought oh he's going to fix the line and really he hasn't done it his moves on a whole really have not worked out um, and so uh, they find themselves in, in murky situation as well and this is Zach Wilson coming back off the sprained knee last week in Houston they won the game he didn't he didn't perform great uh, he had that terrible interception and so um you look at this as a situation where, okay, he gets his feet wet. He comes back in against the Houston team. They get a win despite him playing not great. Um, so let's move forward here and see, you know, at three and eight with six games to go. Uh, and they get the Eagles at home this week and an Eagles defense that has not been great, you know, even though the Giants didn't do much of anything against them last week. Um, so they get the Eagles and Saints at home uh, the next two weeks, which is a chance here for, you know, the Saints have been struggling, obviously. Two home games, chance for Zach Wilson to get back into the swing of things. And, and let's see if he can produce a little bit more down the stretch here because he really hasn't had a whole lot of great games. You know, he's had a couple where he's flashed potential, but on a whole, um, you know, geez, we were talking earlier this year about, you know, whether they should uh, – people were saying potentially, you know, put Mike White in, which is insane. But like, but the fact that that was even a conversation just indicates uh, just as an indicator of how much, you know, Wilson, like so many rookie quarterbacks, just has not thrived this year. Now, a lot of that comes from, you know, there are situations outside that guys control, like their line is bad. So it's hard for a rookie quarterback to, to thrive when he has a really bad offensive line. So, uh, yeah, I think they just want to see growth from Zach Wilson down the stretch. Obviously, the Jets aren't, aren't a playoff team. They're in a rebuild, and, and this is going to be a process. Uh, so um, I think that they just want to see some some growth from him down the stretch. He can't go out and have um, 
a bunch more games like he did in Houston. I mean, those numbers were, were poor, and they're not going to win games that way. So uh, that, that that would be a problem if he continues to have those type of numbers. That, you know, the goal and the expectation is that the, that the numbers improve. And I think last week a little bit of a mulligan because he was coming off the – the injury where he had been out for more than a month. Um, and uh, let's see if he can be, in, build on this and, and finish strong. When is Beckton due back? Yeah, I mean, it's still up in the air. He's still working his way back. And this is, this thing has taken uh, longer than expected. And I think one of the reasons why is he's a big guy. I mean, he's an enormous guy, let's be honest. Weight is, weight is going to be a concern for him throughout his career. They knew that when they drafted him, and um, so you, you talk about the guys that were drafted, the tackles that were drafted that year. Obviously, Tristan Worse has turned out to be, you know, probably a, definitely the best player in that group. With Andrew Thomas maybe right in the mix there, and when the Jets drafted Beckton, you know, you look at it and said, "Geez, this kid is really, really big. Um, how is he going to do against speed rushers?" Well, you saw that in training camp this year. Carl Lawson abused him. Um, which is something that'll be a storyline for when Beckton comes back. Ken, is he quick enough and nimble enough to, to deal with speed rushers? And then the other part of it is, like, can this guy just stay on the field? I mean, conditioning-wise and wear and tear on the feet and the knees at, you know, 360 or three, three, maybe even heavier than 360. I mean, you don't have to be that heavy to be a successful NFL offensive tackle. Um, and so – Yes, the weight is going to be a concern for him throughout his career. It's something he's going to have to deal with, and um, it looks like um, you know this is this this situation with his knee, um, just because of all the weight he has on his body on the knee is is why it took so long. Taking a bite of the Big Apple with uh, Daryl Slater of the Newark Star Ledger. Uh, let me ask you about uh, the one thing I can say about Joe Douglas is that he gave. Uh, Zach Wilson more weapons than uh, than than previous. Uh, Michael Carter, who's out now for a period of games, uh, looks like the real deal. I, I think he can be a quality back. But I want to focus on Elijah Moore. Daryl, I got to tell you, this kid to me looks like a star in the making. I don't know what you think of him, but we've seen some examples where this guy can separate himself from the defense. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, he, he lit it up in camp this summer. Like, if you looked at the Jets this summer in camp and said, like, what what are the biggest reasons for hope for this team going forward? Like, Elijah Moore would be right at the top of that list because he was excellent throughout spring and the summer and had a few hiccups throughout this year. And, um, you know, obviously one of those things is, you know, it's hard to throw the ball down the field when you don't have a line that can protect. So, uh, but he, given his, the circumstances and given what he's had to work with, uh, and he's done a pretty darn good job and he's really looked particularly impressive lately. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of reasons for hope there and they pick him in the second round. Um, and they've had not a lot of luck at all with getting guys in the second round. And, and like you said, I mean, the, the, Mike McCagnan, the previous GM, did a poor job of surrounding Sam Donald with, with, with weapons and talent. And everyone, you know, said that that's something Joe Douglas needs to do. So he went out and he drafts Makai Becton, and, and he drafts Elijah Vera Tucker this year, who looks like he's going to be a really good player at guard. And uh, he goes and signs Corey Davis. And now he overpaid Corey Davis, but that's the way it works in free agency. And he drafts Elijah Moore. So. The whole deal with it, you know, the draft is you need to take a lot of swings because it's such a crapshoot. So, yeah, maybe maybe one of these guys isn't going to work out. Like, maybe Beckton isn't going to work out, which is which is a problem because you draft to be your left tackle of the future. But you took another swing and you got a good player in Vera Tucker. You took another swing and you got a good player in Elijah Moore. And so, um, 
that's what you need to do. I mean, in today's NFL, if you want to build a winner uh, you, you and you want to win on a quarterback's rookie contract, like, for instance, like the Eagles did, um, you, got, you have to be able to invest the right pieces to put around him. And so uh, I think that you've seen some signs of that. Um, now, not all those picks have worked out. Like Denzel Mims hasn't, hasn't been great, but um, I think Elijah Moore uh, has given Jets fans – you know, if you look at reasons for hope coming out of this year, Elijah Moore, Elijah Bear Tucker, uh, but they spell their names differently, actually, are, are both right at the, up there at the top of the list. Well, they got two number ones coming up, two number twos coming up, and the yep. trade that sent Jamal Adams to Seattle now gives the Jets two of the top five picks in the draft. That could be incredibly valuable. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Jets, Giants, and Eagles because of the, the trades here, the Eagles are going to have three, three first-round picks next year, but they, just setting that aside, but like the Jets and the Giants, I think right now the Jets and the Giants are uh, have four straight picks in the first round like within the top ten. So I think the Jets are three and four, whatever it is, but the Giants are five and six or six and seven. Anyway, so yeah, I, who would have thought that Seattle, man, like, I mean, that trade could not have worked out any better for uh, Joe Douglas because – Jamal Adams has not lived up to his contract in Seattle. He's, his production has tailed off, and the, and the Seahawks have, have struggled. So that pick was much higher than most people would have ever, ever, ever expected. Now, remember, that trade was made um, going into last season. So you're talking about the Seahawks at that point were still really good. No one would have ever, ever thought that that pick would be as high as, as it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, the Jets have a pretty significant draft haul. They don't need to go get a quarterback. And think about it like this. Like, if a team wants to move up to get a quarterback this year, now we'll see what the quarterback class looks like. But if a team is desperate and wants to move up to get a quarterback, Joe Douglas can trade back and get even more draft capital, which is a, which is a good thing when you're trying to uh, when you're trying to rebuild. The more premium picks, the better. And the Jets already have a good chunk of premium picks. They can afford to move up if they want to, but because they don't need a quarterback and they don't have to force it, quote unquote, in the first round, um, they could move back too, and they could they could they could pile up even more picks. Now, uh, you know, picks don't win games. Just like the, you have to make the right pick eventually, or picks. But like I said, it's a crapshoot. And the more swings you can take at it in the premium rounds, one, two, and and three, um, the better. Well, I, I think uh, the Seattle uh, Seahawks have reached the the end of the era. Uh, there's no longer a legion of doom uh, compared to the defense they once had. Russell Wilson might be playing his last year with Seattle. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo might be playing his last year in San Francisco. We kind of believe that uh, Aaron Rodgers is playing his last year in Green Bay. So we may see a whole different shift at the quarterback position come next season. No doubt. And then you think about where these guys wind up. You know, the Broncos will be in the mix for a quarterback. And now, you know, could the Giants make a move for, I mean, here's the other thing. Like, you can't hold a gun to Aaron Rodgers' head and say you have to come play for the Giants or whatever. So, like, these guys are going to want to go to a situation that is amenable to, to winning um, fairly immediately. And um, now, you know, maybe Rodgers decides that that's still Green Bay for him because they have, you know, they have quite a bit of talent for all the gripes that he's had. Uh, with them, you know, they still have a pretty darn good chance of winning big. So, yeah, I think you, you could see a, a pretty significant shift in, in the quarterback landscape here uh, coming up, especially because 
it's not it's not a draft with a Trevor Lawrence in it. Like I think it's pretty fair to say there's no Trevor Lawrence, there's no Andrew right. Luck type player. I mean the the guys who you're talking about, Malik Willis from Liberty, and that Coral kid from Ole Miss are probably the top two players. But I don't think anyone looks at it and says there's a Kansas quarterback. So I think you could see some teams wheeling and dealing in terms of getting a little desperate uh, to, to try to go out and get a veteran quarterback. I don't think at the beginning of the year, if I said who's the best team in the NFL. Most people would say eh, Tampa Bay, maybe Green yeah. Bay, maybe Buffalo, maybe Baltimore. Now, are you tell me who the best team is in the NFL, and I don't know how you can look away from the New England Patriots. It's remarkable. I mean, <laughs> what they've done there, and, and yeah, they had the bridge here with Cam Newton last year, but they go out and they, and they spend a ton, a ton of money uh, this offseason, and Belichick never spends money. Uh in like he like he did this off season and and they 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 tried to, with that rebuild so they marry up an interesting approach there which is uh, spend money immediately when you're drafting a quarterback high usually you kind of see it going into the guy's second year where you try to take advantage of the fact he's on an affordable rookie contract and, but you you have to you have to hit on the quarterback too and like man it sure looks like they've hit on Mac Jones and uh, I, I think you know people looked at him and said you know, maybe he was like what the third or fourth quarterback but he definitely wasn't mentioned in that top two with trevor lawrence and, and zach wilson but sure enough uh he's goes to a situation that's very stable and josh daniels for for all of his flaws as a head coach or whatever you know he's he's a pretty darn good offensive coordinator and they got a great system up there in terms of uh, stability in terms of veterans and in terms of just the, the infrastructure that they have in new england and um Mac Jones has parlayed that along with his talent to, to having a really darn good rookie year, and they're on fire right now. I mean, they're absolutely on fire. That matchup on Monday in Buffalo is going to be so fun. Oh. I mean, these days we don't get a lot anymore of like the great Monday night matchup. The big game seems to go to Sundays, and like when I was growing up, you know, you know, in, in the in the nineties, and they, you know, you remember those great Monday night matchups. This Monday night game at Buffalo is going to be just fantastic. I think it'll be a lot of fun to see Josh Allen and, and Mac Jones go head to head for what could be, you know, the first of. And now these two teams are going to play in a couple weeks again too. The, yep. The first of many times, like these two, these two guys, it's pretty clear are going to be battling for the division for years to come. It'll be, it'll be awesome to see. The two uh, primetime games this week are big: Denver, Kansas City, and as you mentioned, New England at Buffalo. Uh, I mean, the, the Patriots have won six in a row. They're on fire. Uh, you look at the Jets, uh, not the Jets opponent, the Giants opponent this week, Miami. They've won four in a row. And I've not big, been a big Tua Tagovailoa fan, but i got to give them credit. Uh, and their defense is outstanding. Their head coach is a defensive guy. Uh, so it's going to be a tough game for the Giants. Let me ask you one thing before I let you go. Michael Strahan gets his number retired on Sunday. Richly deserved. Maybe long overdue to where Michael Strahan said what took so long. You know what? I don't think he's wrong. Oh, definitely long overdue. My gosh, I mean, <laughs> really long overdue. I mean, you put they put Eli Manning in the year after he retired. Why did why not put Strahan in the year after he retired? I don't know the rationale for that, but like, yeah, I mean, like Michael Strahan is more of a shoe in Hall of Famer than Eli Manning ever will be in terms of the just the personal stats. Obviously, two Super Bowl MVPs and all that, but like, yeah. So yeah, exactly. What took so long? I mean, and then. The Giants have had some interesting ones. You know, like Leonard Marshall is not in their ring of honor. 
Um, you know, I don't know if like younger, I, I didn't really watch Leonard Marshall, but I, you know, reading about him and all that now, and like the older Giants fans will remember that guy was awesome. He should be in the ring of honor. I don't know if you're retiring his number, obviously, but like, so there's been some interesting ones like that. Um, but yeah, so that, so Michael Strahan gets his number retired and, and John Merritt does not speak at the, at the number retirement like he did for Eli Manning when he was booed, but Mara's up there. And the first time Strahan thanks Mara and Tish, uh, the booze rained down and, and it's almost like Strahan was ready for it and talking about, uh, Giants have been down before and, you know, be thankful for what you got and they're, they're going to be up again. So we'll see. We'll see how long it takes for them to be up again. Uh, we'll see if uh, Daniel Jones is, is really the next Eli Manning, but there's just a lot of we'll sees around around the Giants, really the Jets and the Giants still right now at this point. Yeah, there's no question. I, I, to this day, look, everybody talks about the 85 Bears as the best defense. I don't know. I thought the giant defense of Taylor and Carl Banks and Harry Carson and Leonard Marshall and that whole crowd, I thought they were pretty damn good. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have probably the, the LT, maybe the best all-around football player in the history of the game, right up there with Jim Brown, right? So, like, that that alone right there. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, all those other guys, you know, all those guys that you mentioned are, are either number retired or ring of honor. I just think Leonard Marshall long overdue for, for getting in the Giants ring of honor. Dal, appreciate your time. You stay safe. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Harold Slater of uh, New York Newsday, uh, not New York Newsday, the Newark Star-Ledger. So we take a bite of the Big Apple. Uh, when you look at New York sports, the Giants and the Jets right now are not amongst the better teams in the league. Uh, the Nets are one of the best teams in the NBA. The Knicks are more than just relevant. In hockey, the Rangers are playing out of their mind right now, which is tremendous to see. And in baseball... Uh, the Mets have made a huge splash with free agents. The Yankees, not so much, but the Yankees are in the conversation every year. That's the way they've been built. I just, uh, I'm wondering why the Yankees didn't make more moves uh, before the lockout. It's a question I won't get answered. You folks stay safe. Thanks for being a part of this program. I'm Howard David, and we have taken a bite of the Big Apple. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.